Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Welcome to Culture Lab. I'm Christy Taylor. This is the show all about how science plays out in our cultural creations. Sometimes we talk about the science behind popular TV and movies. Other times we talk to artists and authors about the research that influenced their works. And this week, we're leaving Earth entirely. As astronauts look down on the planet from space, the experience is often life-altering. The pale blue dot looks fragile from way up there. And in the new novel Orbital, from author Samantha Harvey, we get to see Earth from the perspective of astronauts aboard the International Space Station. Harvey hopes that Orbital is as much a painting as it is a novel, writing in the most expressive and lovely way to capture the epic vistas witnessed from space each day, from glaciers and deserts to the peaks of mountains and the swells of oceans, and even the destructive force of a typhoon. The book follows the team of astronauts as they observe the Earth, collect meteorological data, conduct scientific experiments and test the limits of the human body, all while changing their perspectives on their own lives, too. In this episode, Rowan Hooper is popping his head back in to interview Samantha about the book, her inspirations, and how she was able to so vividly capture this sense of Earth from afar. Take a listen and enjoy. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rowan. Thank you for having me. Now, look, I said the book's about life on the ISS, but it's really much more than that, isn't it? How would you describe it? Well, my my initial conception of it was that it would be as much a painting as it is a novel. Whether it ended up being that or not, I'm not sure. But mm. I spent a lot of time looking at images of the Earth from space and particularly from low Earth orbit. And you can watch videos of, of ISS orbits online. You can just watch the live the live stream, in fact, yeah. which I did a lot. Yeah, and I wanted to describe the extraordinary, actually unearthly beauty of the earth with the only means I had, which is writing. You know, I, I can't paint, I can't make music. So this is what I had. So I wanted to see what you could do with words in a painterly way to try to conjure up that rapturous, joyful, extraordinary, and also sort of now, I guess, somewhat grief-stricken um, yeah. view of the Earth. So I see it as a kind of space pastoral, I guess, yeah. <laughs> sort of nature writing about space. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think it succeeds so well because I've, I've never read anything that really, you know, we've all seen pictures of 
Earth from space, and it does. It is wonderful to see it, but the, I think the way you've written about it is really it does something. It really succeeds in this sort of pain to Earth. You know, should we have an extract to set the tone? Outside, the Earth reels away in a mass of moon glow, peeling backward as they forge towards its edgeless edge. The tufts of cloud across the Pacific brighten to nocturnal ocean, to cobalt. Now there's Santiago on South America's approaching coast in a cloud-hazed burn of gold. Unseen through the closed shutters, the trade winds blowing across the warm waters of the Western Pacific have worked up a storm, an engine of heat. The winds take the warmth out of the ocean where it gathers as clouds which thicken and curdle and begin to spin in vertical stacks that have formed a typhoon. As the typhoon moves west towards southern Asia, their craft tracks east, eastward and down towards Patagonia, where the lurch of a far-off aurora domes the horizon in neon. The Milky Way is a smoking trail of gunpowder shot through a satin sky. On board the craft, it's Tuesday morning, 4.15, the beginning of October, Out there, it's Argentina, it's the South Atlantic, it's Cape Town, it's Zimbabwe. Over its right shoulder, the planet whispers morning, a slender, molten breach of light. They slip through time zones in silence. I mean, that really gives a flavour of the, the amount of geographical knowledge and love that's gone into this book. I mean, you said you spent time you know, looking at pictures and images and live streams. Is that what you did? You just kind of immersed yourself in it. Tell us about the the process of getting into putting yourself into space and looking down on Earth. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it was twofold. There's the the looking at Earth from low Earth orbit, and that was entirely visual research. So I I did exactly that. I did the, the, the closest thing I can ever do to going to space since I never will go to space which is just watch hours and hours every day, pretty much, of footage of low Earth orbit and of, of other footage. So looking at images that are taken from further further away, so the images that have been taken from various moon missions and satellites and so on, but mainly those from low Earth orbit and watching videos and doing entire orbits, so a whole 90-minute orbit and, and just writing down what I could see. Mm. So there was that. And then the other aspect to it was life on board the ISS. I mean, I don't ever call the the spacecraft in the book the ISS, but I mean, there's, there's no secret that that's what it is. And, and that, you know, that was just a lot of research of looking on the NASA and ESA websites of reading astronaut journals, reading astronaut diaries. The NASA website is somewhere you could spend your whole life if you wanted to. It's huge. Everything NASA does pretty much is in the public domain, so it's quite easy to find information. Yeah, and then just kind of winnowing through the whole lot for for salient things, the things I could use without it sounding like a manual. So it was trying to marry those more kind of mundane and, and technical aspects of living in space with this kind of exploded and, and rapturous sense of what it's like to look out from space at the earth and beyond at the cosmos yeah you really get that that marriage as you say of the mundane the day-to-day business of being up there with the 
completely <laughs> inhuman sense of looking down on the planet. Did you talk to any astronauts about it? I mean, because like I've I've met a few astronauts from different eras of space travel, and I remember once asking Tim Peake about his dreams on the ISS. And that was the only thing he didn't want to talk about, actually. He said, uh. that's the only thing I'm keeping to myself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything else they're willing to talk about. You know, children always ask them about the toilets on the ISS. And, <laughs> yep. you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in fact, we went to a Tim Peake talk last night in Bath. Oh, wow. Um, obviously, someone asked him about toilets on the ISS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody asked him about his dreams, which is a really good question. Oh, um, I wonder if he's, has he read your book yet? I have no idea. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to know. Well, I so, would sort of love to know what an astronaut thinks about it, and would be also terrified to know. I didn't speak to astronauts while I was writing this book, mm. partly because of what you say that I read a lot of books by astronauts and a lot of the accounts they've given of space, and you find that what they don't share with you are the things that they probably find too precious to share, mm. and that in the sharing they dilute some of the experience. You find a lot of their answers are quite rote and are quite practiced. And I wanted to get away from that and under the skin into just things that I imagined they might think. Of course, I could be wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the project of fiction, isn't it? To, to dare to be wrong about these things, but perhaps in the imagining to get some things right. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because at least in the olden days, they were all very much sort of right stuff test pilots and you know well they actually they were picked not to be too to think too hard about about being up in space and actually that isn't Buzz Aldrin he did have you know mental health issues when he came back because of that experience whereas with Neil Armstrong never had any <laughs> never bothered him having walked on the moon you know but I guess that was that the impetus for writing the book as a novelist it's just such a great opportunity to get into the heads of the, in this situation and this completely unusual situation? I would say that the that aspect of it, inhabiting another person's point of view, which isn't my own and can never be my own, in fact, was not the main impetus of it. That was the thing I was most afraid of with this yeah. book. Usually I, I am relatively adventurous in in the characters I choose to write about and they're never people I am or, or could be. But with this, in fact, I started writing this book. It was all in first person from one of the astronauts' points of view. And I abandoned it about 5,000 words in and I went off and started writing other novels because I thought, I just can't do this. It feels fraudulent. You know, there are mm. astronauts out there. They are highly intelligent, articulate people. They could write about this. What right do I have to write about this? And so I walked away from it and it was only by chance that I came back to it because I accidentally opened that document one day when I was starting work and I thought, oh, this, I forgot about this. <laughs> and I started reading it and I thought, oh, there's something about this that that I do want to continue with. It just has a sort of energy about it that I want to carry on with. So I decided to override those feelings of fraudulence and just get on with it. What I wanted, I guess, especially initially, was for the astronauts. They are my lens, of course, but I'm not restricted to their points of view. And, and the, the point of view of the book is quite elastic and it, and it moves out and it has a more cosmic view sometimes. Mm. And I wanted the astronauts to be 
yes, a lens on what we can see, but also part of what we can see. You know, they are part of the scenery. They're part of what exists in space. You know, that, so they're just another moving, interesting element of what's out there. So that was maybe my my way of of trying to reconcile myself to these feelings of of uh, of trespass into yeah. something I could never sincerely or genuinely write about. And then once you start writing, it's it was the same with all writing. Once you start doing it and you get into it, you you just give it every bit of seriousness you can and you write from your heart and you hope for the best. So that's, you know, that's how this book came about. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned grief earlier, and um, that reminded me of William Shatner when he came back from his trip to space with Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos, you know, welcomed him back to Earth. And he was probably hoping for this really Captain Kirk moment. But Shatner said it was like, that was the strongest feeling of grief I've ever experienced. And he was he was kind of destroyed by it. And, and uh, the, seeing Earth from space, the grief he felt about the destruction of, uh, of our planet, I thought that was really moving. And obviously, this is part of your book as well, isn't it? Like the I mean, even if it's not explicitly, it's always there. The looking down on our, on our planet and this fragile blue marble and that environmental aspect. It's kind of inevitable, isn't it? I mean, it's implied by the subject matter. You can't really anymore think about or look at the earth without looking at what we're doing to it. And mm. it's a really difficult thing. I didn't want to write climate fiction. It wasn't that I didn't really want to write it. That just wasn't the project of this book. You know, I wanted, in fact, to write a book that was about joy and was about beauty. I sort of feel like those those responses or that, or that attitude towards the world in whatever subject you're dealing with is a form of resistance <laughs> to all the things that are happening in the world, mm. to be able to, to see beauty and to feel joy and to feel your heart expand. I mean, those are things that I that I want to try and capture on the page because it feels like my only form of resistance. So I wanted to write about what honestly what was happening on the earth and what can be seen from space. So there's this typhoon, and obviously typhoons have always and will always happen, but we know that they're becoming more common and they're generally becoming bigger because the oceans are warming. So in the book, the book happens over one day in space, so across 16 orbits, 16 sunsets, 16 sunrises. And this one day 
happens to be the day on which what turns out to be a super typhoon hits the Philippines. Mm. So there are things like that that I wanted to just show in in images, really, that there's the movement of this of this beautiful planet, which is in, by no means serene. It's changing, it's in motion, it's dynamic, and everything we're doing to it is changing that dynamic. But to talk about that purely through imagery, really, and not not through any preaching, I guess. And, and I guess that's really what William Shatner is describing when he talks about grief he felt when he came back to Earth. It's seeing, it's seeing the Earth and everything that is implied by by its beauty, by its fragility, by its aloneness. That's what hits you in the solar plexus, isn't it? And I, that's why I would love to go to space. I feel that if we could, if every citizen on Earth could go to space, maybe we would feel differently about the planet we live on. And it, so this is my conjecture, but I, I felt yeah. it. even just looking at images is enough to make you feel that joy and the grief that is implied by it. I was just about to ask if you if you wanted to go to space, because you were very clear before, I will never go to space. But what if Jeff Bezos reads this book and, and rings you up and says, Samantha, you've written this beautiful book as your reward. I'm going to give you a free ride into space. What, what would you take? You would take it, right? I'd take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there are probably people I'd rather go with, mm. but um, I'd take it. Would you go? Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what I feel about space tourism, actually, mm. in terms of the expense of it and the, all that money people are spending on it when we've got enough things down on Earth we could be doing. I mean, there is definitely that, that sense of it changes people's minds, but it's quite an expensive way to go about it, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> to, and, to do and uh, a, a very carbon heavy way of going about it. As well. Yeah. And yeah. I think it is fraught with with complexity and difficulty. And I also feel very conflicted about that. And also about the the moon missions and the Mars missions that we're planning. And we're in this new era of space travel now. And there is a big part of me that thinks, shall, shall we deal with the problems that we have on Earth, which are numerous and profound first? But I also realise that if progress were left to me, we would still be living in caves and feeling <laughs> guilty about eating a rabbit yeah. that we caught you know yeah. we wouldn't be any you know, the, the world is not made by people like me you know i think it's not either or actually we can we can go to mars and we can fix the problems on earth there's other things we shouldn't be doing you know so i think i i do think that we can carry on exploring space but we can also live more sustainably on earth and and value our our own planet so i think that that is true absolutely except that the means by which we're doing it is more of the same so it's mm. we're just kind of extending our our territorialism our capitalism our exploitation yeah. of land our competitiveness between nations we're just extending that into space we're not learning a new lesson we're just doing more of the same destructive behavior it seems to me in space yeah. instead of trying to take an entirely new approach to it, which I think the ISS has been for the last 20 or 23 years. You know, it has been a, a different approach. It's been cooperative. It's been science-based. It hasn't really, it hasn't been a land grab. You know, it's it's been about nations cooperating with one another as a sort of 
post-Cold War response. And we know that that is coming to an end, that era, well, it has come to an end. And I think that's very sad. And, and the the era that's opening out is exciting in all sorts of ways, but it hasn't got that same collaborative feeling to it. Yeah, the I in the ISS, the international, has been the the real shining light on it. I mean, it has been criticised, but that people say the science that's been done up there hasn't really been that groundbreaking. But, you know, the joy of the international, the collaboration, like you say, of it, the way it brings nations together, you know, a time like this, but even in the past, that's been something incredibly special. And that's something that comes out in your book, isn't it? The, the four astronauts you have, they're all from different countries. Oh, sorry, the six astronauts up there, aren't there? There are four astronauts and two Russian cosmonauts. cosmonauts, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So it's very collaborative and that is that is very much, you get that feeling from your book as well. Yeah, I really wanted to explore that. I mean, I started writing this book way before Russia's invasion of Ukraine and part of what I wanted the book to be about or to have as its subtext was the fracturing relationship between Russia and the West, which was even before the Ukraine war was beginning to to show in relationships on the ISS and you know around the ISS and the fact that SpaceX made the the Dragon craft to to get the astronauts back and forth because until then they'd relied entirely on the Soyuz which was a Russian craft so America wanted to stop having to depend upon Russia to get there and back and at the end of the book in the this is you know, no spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> there is a. I, I mentioned that there's a crack in the hull of the ISS, which there is. Yeah. Um, in the Russian segment, and that was a, a sort of symbol, really, of this of this fracturing relationship. And then, you know, the book was in fact finished when the war in Ukraine happened, started. But that sort of took apart my delicate subtext, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So then I, you know, I thought, well, I, I, I can't rewrite the book based on that. So I, I'm mm. just going to leave it there as a subtext. But it's been yeah. coming for a long time. But I think it's yeah. really interesting that, nevertheless, the one place that humanity still does collaborate, and Russia and the West still do meaningfully collaborate and entrust their lives to one another, is on the ISS. I find that fascinating. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. That was Rowan Hooper interviewing Samantha Harvey about her new book, Orbital. If you like this interview, make sure you subscribe to our feed for more like it. Plus, our weekly news podcast and the incredible Dead Planet Society, all dropping right here every Friday and Tuesday. Find more journalism from New Scientist on our website at newscientist.com. I'm Christy Taylor. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.